Hello again, my most esteemed friends and colleagues. Thank you for joining me. I am very excited with what I have to share with you today. Previously, on episode 14 of the podcast, I spoke to you of the five hindrances, the Buddhist conception of the five key factors commonly standing in our path in both meditative practice and daily life. Well, today, I would like to speak to you about the five interests, the antidote to the poison of the five hindrances. If you haven't listened to episode 14, I would strongly recommend that you do so now because this is a direct continuation of that theme. And so for those who have, welcome back to Budo the Martial Way. My name is Lewis and without further ado, let's begin. As I spoke to you about the five hindrances, I mentioned that recognition leads to mindfulness, and that is absolutely true. It is quite remarkable how often we are lost in the fog of thought and emotion. We can't see the forest for the trees while we are there in the midst of it all. And so we practice recognition, being able to clearly see what it is that influences us. And through that clear, objective view, we are able to go some way towards separating ourselves from the influence of the thought itself. This is something I spoke of in episode 16 during guided meditation, being able to clearly assess our thoughts and emotions. And during that conversation, I also spoke to you about equanimity and balance. Within Buddhist practices, as well as Taoist and Stoic philosophy, this equanimity is absolutely key to overcoming the corrupting influences of these negative factors. What I wish to discuss with you today, these five interests, are not Buddhist teachings. The path to nirvana, the cessation of all desire, both positive and negative, emptiness, shunyata, this can only be reached with absolute and all-encompassing balance, to see beyond maya and the dualistic illusion of reality. Now, this is all starting to get a little bit heady. I don't want to lose you here. All I'm trying to convey to you now is that what I'm about to explain to you, these five interests, are still within the realm of duality. In several of these interests, I am directly opposing the negative influences of the hindrance with a remedy of equal and opposite value. It's like a heavy alkaline to counterbalance a strong acid. Some of these interests in and of themselves will not lead you directly toward full awakening, but I believe they may be able to help you somewhat along the way to find that balance within ourselves. And so to begin, how do we counter the first of the five hindrances, desire? As I said before, recognition leads to mindfulness, and sometimes that is enough. For us to be able to stop for a moment and simply examine the sensation of desire within us, sometimes this is all it takes to weaken its hold on us and allow us to consciously overcome it. However, when that is not enough, I would like you to consider two factors which may help prevent you from succumbing to this feeling of desire. The first is discipline. In episode 17 of the podcast, I dedicated an entire episode to talking specifically about discipline and motivation, which seem to me to be much less understood than they are so commonly talked about. So now I entreat you, 
Remember well the rules and code of behavior that we each wish to conduct ourselves by. As an individual of any age, it is inevitably our personal responsibility to control our own indulgence. This duty falls on us, testing our discipline most heavily. I know it's not easy. I have my own desires which tempt me most fiercely. But every moment in which I feel this desire, this temptation, I remember that it is an exercise of discipline. Like a well-trained dog with a treat balanced on his nose, as we restrain ourselves, we cultivate this discipline within us. And as our discipline grows, our desire weakens. The second factor I would like you to consider to counter the effects of desire is that of aparigraha. In Hinduism and Jainism, aparigraha is the virtue of non-possessiveness and non-grasping, and refers to keeping the desire for possessions to what is necessary or important. I think it is often thought by many that Buddhists reject all possessions and live a completely ascetic lifestyle, but this is simply not true. The Buddha, Gautama, first lived as royalty before rejecting his privileged lifestyle and living the ascetic way of a monk. Yet after living in this manner for a long time, he also found it to be a limited experience and not the true way. So then, after his own awakening, he taught the middle way, a life of neither complete indulgence nor extreme austerity. Of course, it is up to your own personal judgment to decide what could be considered necessary or important in your own possessive nature. But if we keep the moderate nature of a parigraha in mind, it may help to combat the seductive nature of desire and alleviate the burden of the first of the five hindrances. The second interest would be to counter the hindrance of anger. Whenever we notice ourselves feeling emotions of dislike, whether it be from mild irritation to full-blown rage, we would do well to once again consider an opposing view. Forgiveness can be an immediate and satiating response, even when we have been genuinely wronged and are absolved of any responsibility, to hold on to anger will not change events of the past. In fact, to hold on to anger is to carry that incident with you, prolonging your own suffering as a result of the situation. To forgive someone does not mean to excuse their actions, only to release yourself from feelings of anger or resentment. As such, forgiveness should be seen as an emotion you extend to yourself as much as another, much like anger itself. Another useful sentiment is that of compassion. Especially when experiencing negative emotions towards someone or something which we normally hold in high regard, at this time we would do well to remember our usual feelings toward it or them and attempt to return ourselves to a refuge of compassionate judgment in which we can replace feelings of resentment with that of concern and warmth. Forgiveness and compassion are feelings more easily extended to those we like. But for some individuals in this world, it is very difficult for us to feel that way toward them. When I first developed this system, I had a third quality reserved for those beyond compassion. For them, I felt pity. 
Pity is a more sorrowful perspective of concern and may do well in guiding us toward forgiveness to those we have no desire to feel any compassion for. In much the same way that we often suffer the most from our own frustration and negative actions, consider that the person you feel indignation toward is most likely suffering more than you are aware, and their outwardly antagonistic actions are almost certainly reflection of malign experiences they have suffered themselves. However, since reading some of Nietzsche's work, I have come to see pity itself as an evil. If I may share with you a quite lengthy passage of his work, I quote, Pity preserves things that are ripe for decline. It defends things that have been disowned and condemned by life, and it gives a depressive and questionable character to life itself by keeping alive an abundance of failures of every type. People have dared to call pity a virtue. People have gone even further, making it into the virtue, the foundation and source of all virtues. But of course, you always have to keep in mind that this was the perspective of a nihilistic philosophy that inscribed the negation of life onto its shield. Schopenhauer was right here. Pity negates life. It makes life worthy of negation. Pity is the practice of nihilism. Once more, this depressive and contagious instinct runs counter to the instincts that preserve and enhance the value of life. By multiplying misery just as much as by conserving everything miserable, pity is one of the main tools used to increase decadence. Pity wins people over to nothingness. End quote. So when we feel anger towards someone, first we should attempt to extend feelings of forgiveness toward them and also to ourselves. Then we should attempt to feel compassion for them, for all men are brothers and live for the same end. And finally, if we struggle in our feelings of forgiveness and compassion, rather than ending with pity, I now say that we should instead focus on, at the very least, understanding. Everything arises from conditions, and everyone behaves the way they do based on their own unique experience and realization. So if nothing else, we should attempt to see clearly and understand that which motivates their thoughts and actions. When laziness is encountered, the first consideration should be that of discipline once again. It could be argued that discipline is the answer to all of the hindrances. To respond in a disciplined manner would be the theoretically simple task of recognizing all states of the mind for their impermanent and abstract nature and relying solely on the centered, directing mind. However, I feel as though discipline applies particularly to desire and also to laziness. Discipline most reflects desire in the form of self-restraint and temperance, whereas it reflects laziness in the form of self-motivation and drive. Were we to act with discipline when we feel aversion to effort and the seduction of idleness, we would quickly call to mind the original decision to engage in whatever activity we now find ourselves avoiding. We make the decision toward action fully educated with the knowledge that it would eventually require effort and may not necessarily be an easy or enjoyable task. 
However, when the time for that effort arrives, if we were to shirk our responsibilities at that critical moment, we would be abandoning our conscious rationality in favor of transient feelings and emotion. This would make us no better than a simple animal, as it is our directing mind and rational decision-making abilities which place us consciously above that of other life on this planet. If we may remember this fact and act proactively despite the inclination to do otherwise, we would be acting with discipline. A second consideration in the face of laziness is motivation. If discipline is the quality of operating to a set of rules or standards we hold privately within ourselves, then motivation can be thought of as the utilization of external factors as a force of influence. If we can identify motivating forces in our own lives and harness their impelling qualities, they may be used as a defense against laziness. Think carefully about what it is that drives you to action, then carry these thoughts with you, always ready to use as a reminder of why you must act. To quote Jocko Willink, The desire for rest is just weakness. It is only the desire to take the path of least resistance, the easy path. But by engaging in action one step at a time, you will overcome that desire and you will stay on the disciplined path, the righteous path, the war path, which is exactly where you belong. Discipline and motivation and the important difference between the two is something I talk about at length in the 17th episode of this podcast. Check it out for further information. The fourth hindrance, restlessness. As we observe our thoughts, we must assess the value of their content and determine the productivity of continuing in that line of thinking. If we find ourselves becoming restless with thoughts of worry or regret, we would do well to remind ourselves of Zen, of present awareness. When thinking of Zen, a simple exercise to help build the connection between our mind and the present moment is to take three deep breaths, which if done mindfully and with concentration will aid in bringing us consciously into the present moment and away from restless thoughts. This takes practice as with all things. Centering ourselves here and now is an exercise we should all make great effort to engage in as the benefits are innumerable. If you'd like to learn more about time, please check out episode 13 of the podcast. It's interesting how all these things tie together. I keep referring you to other episodes of the podcast. It's all interconnected, which reinforces the value of each lesson. So finally, to counter doubt, we must have faith, but not blind faith. Many religions and doctrines will teach faith as a catharsis from all unpleasant feelings, preaching that you should not seek further knowledge or experience outside the confines of their specific teachings, but to simply believe unquestionably in what you have been told. The faith I speak of is to yourself in your own conviction, and in your own experience. Early in our practice, be it meditative or otherwise, we lack experience. 
and it is at this time we must have faith in ourselves, remembering the conscious decision we made to pursue the practice we have, despite whatever difficulties we may encounter in doing so. Similar to how we rely on discipline to counter moments of laziness, we must call to mind the motivations and feelings of resolution we had when we first decided to commit ourselves to our task. Recall these emotions and use them as an instrument to dispel doubt. Feelings of doubt can be compounded by other hindrances, such as an aversion toward effort or feelings of worry or annoyance that we are not progressing as we think we should be. It is at this time that many people struggle to maintain the desire to continue. We may reminisce about times when we were filled with motivation and determination, convincing ourselves that we cannot continue without feeling such emotions once more. However, consider that to be swayed to such a degree, either positively or negatively, by fleeting emotions, is to react instinctively in an animalistic manner. Allowing doubt to hinder your progress or to rely so heavily on motivation that you suffer in its absence is not the way of the sage. To have faith in your own conviction is to believe in your directing mind. Find confidence in your own rational decision-making ability and see clearly the impermanent nature of emotions. Later in our practice, when we have accumulated experience, we can find even more reason for faith. Again, not the sort of blind faith that we may hold in the teachings of another, but faith in what you have seen, felt, and understood within your own mind. Buddhism, that is to say the teachings of Siddhartha Gautama, are only a guide to point the way a suggestion as to how you can find the answers for yourself. No one can find true understanding in the experience of another. Experience itself is an entirely internal event. When you have perceived your own practical comprehension of events, you will then understand beyond words or concepts, beyond intellectual understanding, to a deeper experiential knowledge. It is this instinctive knowledge which can serve as a reliable basis for faith, dispelling doubt with confidence in your own experience. Remember still that recognition should be our first and foremost concern. It may sound easy, but when we become an emotion, we very quickly convince ourselves that we are justified in feeling such a way, as we always have some reason or another for our experience. But the five hindrances are hindrances regardless of however we rationalize our justification. So we must see beyond these base emotive qualities. First, we clearly identify them when they arise, detaching ourselves from the experience and viewing it with clarity and equanimity. Then we apply the remedy of positive thought. And so once again, to counter desire, we consider discipline and a parigraha. To counter anger, we have forgiveness, compassion, and understanding. For laziness, discipline and motivation. For restlessness, zen, present awareness. And finally, for doubt, we must consider faith.
Once again, my friends, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you very much for everyone who's got in contact with me online. I hope you found that interesting. I got a lot of really, really good feedback from a lot of people talking to me about the five hindrances. A lot of you said that it was really informative and interesting. And I know I'm exactly the same. When I first learned about them, I used to consider them a lot, especially when I was, uh, I used to ride my bike back from town along this fantastic, um, it used to be a real old train line, but it had been converted into this uh, pedestrian cycle path. I used to ride along there back from town. Really, really beautiful, really nice ride. And, you know, it was some nice time to just think and consider things. And I would think about the five hindrances and how to counter them and, you know, recognizing them in my own life. And it made a really big difference, a huge difference, you know, Um, rather than just thinking about, well, I'm angry. What is causing me anger? It's this, it's you. Rather than pointing the finger to look within ourselves and and think, okay, let's forget about the reasons for a second and let's just look at the quality within ourselves. And this is so important. Again, always turning that finger back from other people and pointing it at ourselves. That's really the key to everything I teach, to Buddhism, Zen, the Tao, Stoicism. It's all about what we can do individually. So yeah, again, thank you very much. I appreciate all of you. I hope you found some of what I've had to say interesting. And until next time, those on the way become the way.